Engaging presentations on the most urgent problem of our day and what you can do about it. Now, the End Abortion Podcast by Priests for Life. Hey friends, pro-life leader Frank Pavone here, director of Priests for Life. Great to have you with us for another pro-life prime time. You know, we are in the midst right now of the International Week of Prayer and Fasting. Now, this is an initiative that I had a role in getting off the ground decades ago with a great friend, colleague, and woman of faith, Maureen Flynn. She and her husband, Ted, have done so much for the spread of the gospel of life. And uh, tonight... I want to share with you the talk that is my contribution to this year's International Week of Prayer and Fasting. We're going to pray first, and, uh, and then I'll share with you uh, what I had to say for this year. Of course, with the church focusing so much on special events related to the Eucharist, that is the dominant theme in the International Week uh, this year, and the dominant theme of my talk as well. Uh, which is called This Is My Body, The Pro-Life Commitment is Eucharistic. It's a theme I've been preaching on for decades. Uh, And it's also the theme of the prayer I'd like to share with you now from my book, Pro-Life Reflections for Every Day. Matthew 26, 26, Take and eat, this is my body. Reflection. Supporters of abortion say, This is my body. I can do what I want. Jesus says, this is my body given up for you. The same words are spoken from opposite ends of the universe with totally opposite results. Let us resolve to live those words as Jesus did, giving ourselves away for the good of others, both born and unborn. Let us pray. Lord, thank you for my body, my life, and my freedom. May all of us understand the purpose of these gifts, that is, to freely give ourselves away in love, just as you did. Amen. Well, by the way, you can obtain this book for yourself at ProLifeReflectionsForEveryDay.com. Well, brothers and sisters, uh, before I show you the talk that I prepared for this year's week of prayer and fasting, I also want to share with you a little clip from years ago, now you're going to see me with the, the collar on, all right? We know the change that has happened since then, so I don't want to hear anybody, you know, uh, making a ruckus about, oh, but, but look, but look, yeah, this is because it's from some years ago. Um, most of you are not going to complain about that, uh, but some, we have some people who, who do. Uh, this is a little segment of an interview I did back then with uh, Maureen Flynn, but I want you to focus on what she says about uh, the history of this. And uh, of course, there's a much longer story than this clip uh, contains, but how God's providence worked in having her contact me and my response, encouraging her to continue moving forward with this project, which has now been going on for decades. So let's listen to Maureen, and then you will be able to watch my talk called This Is My Body, The Pro-Life Commitment is Eucharistic. And then in 1993, 94, my husband and I wrote a book that took off like crazy. So we let those two years go. And someone called me one day and said, you need to resurrect the National Week of Prayer and Fasting. So I looked at a picture of Our Lady Guadalupe and I said, well, Blessed Mother, if you want this, okay. okay. But I need to know. I need a sign. I'll overnight a letter to Father Frank. And if he says yes, that's my sign. No one knew I prayed this way. So I owe <laughs> to you, true story, and overnighted it. And it was dated August 22nd. I believe it was 1994, 95, because we did it that year. So it must have been 94 that I, that I sent it to you. And you called me that after you got it within a couple hours and said, yeah, we need to do this. Yes. So then I knew, I said, this is it. We've, we've got to do this.
My brothers and sisters, I'm pro-life leader Frank Pavone, national director of Priests for Life, president of the National Pro-Life Religious Council, and pastoral director of both Rachel's Vineyard and the Silent No More awareness campaign around the world. It is a delight to be with you again for the International Week of Prayer and Fasting, an effort that I have enthusiastically supported, promoted, and participated in from its inception. And I'm so grateful to Maureen Flynn uh, and her husband, Ted, and, and all her team for making this possible once again. Isn't it an inspiration for us all? Isn't it an encouragement to us all? Uh, as we need to be doing each and every day in the body of Christ, encouraging one another, as the scriptures say, while it is still today that we may complete the uh, the race, uh, run the race well, as Paul says, of our faith and encourage each other on the path to salvation. Thank you as we work together in repenting of our sins and building a culture of life and, and praying for the peace of the world and the fulfillment of all the promises of Our Lady and uh, the, uh, the, the will of our Lord. So thanks for letting me be part of this and uh, share my reflections with you today. The pro-life commitment is Eucharistic. That's the topic I want to delve into with you today. And it is a topic on which I have preached and spoken and written for decades. I've been heading Priests for Life for 30 years now. And early on in the development of this ministry, uh, we have taken a very Eucharistic approach to the problem of ending abortion, the problem of building a culture of life out of a culture of death. And of course, it's the Lord's work uh, to build it. It's the Lord's victory that we um, immerse ourselves in. And that victory is Eucharistic. We're going to delve into some of the different aspects of what we believe about the Eucharist and how those truths not only illumine our duty to defend the unborn, but shape it motivate us for it, show us how we carry it out. Let's turn to the Lord first of all in prayer and ask him to assist us in these reflections. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Father, you have manifested your love for us first of all in creating us and secondly in sending your Son Jesus Christ while we were yet sinners to die for us, explaining to us that great and tremendous and unmerited love with the words, this is my body, as he presented to those apostles at the table his own body and blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Lord God, we are a people of life. We are a people of the Eucharist. We thank you for salvation through the flesh and blood of the Son of God. And we ask that that body broken on the cross, that blood shed on the cross, that body risen from the dead and into which we are now incorporated will forever be for us the gift that motivates us to bear witness to life and to build a culture of life and is ultimately our salvation. We pray in the name and through the power of the same Christ our Lord. Amen. The Eucharist. First, it is a sacrament of faith. Our senses, as St. Thomas Aquinas told us, deceive us when it comes to the body of Christ. The sacred host looks the same before as after the consecration, feels the same, smells the same, tastes the same. You know, in the hymn Adoro Te Devote, we sing eloquently those words of Thomas Aquinas. Seeing, touching, tasting are in thee deceived. What says trusty hearing that shall be believed? 
What God's Son has told me, take for truth I do. Truth himself speaks truly, or there's nothing true. In John chapter 6, we read Jesus' promise that he's going to give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink. And people start breaking away because they say this doesn't make any sense. Not only does it go beyond our senses, it goes beyond our understanding. And Jesus doubled down on what he said. Yes, it is true. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. You have to, and the words used there in that scripture passage in John chapter 6, are to munch and to gnaw. He wasn't talking in just a spiritual sense. Now it's true to say that the word of God, the scriptures, is also our bread of life. Of course, it feeds us. We, we eat from the Word every day and drink from the, from the Spirit every day. But when Jesus is promising us the Eucharist, He's talking in very literal physical terms, munching and gnawing on Him. And so many broke away, and Jesus turned to those apostles after doubling down on what He said, and He said, okay, you have a choice. You want to leave me too? I'm not going to change what I just said. And what Peter said was, okay, our understanding isn't helping us here at the moment about what you said. It's our understanding of who you are that's going to help us right now. Because we've come to know and be convinced that you are the Son of God. So as Thomas Aquinas wrote, What God's Son has told me, take for truth I do. Truth himself speaks truly. Or there's nothing true. So even if I don't understand it, Lord, if I know that you're saying it, and I know who you are, then I can accept it. You can help me grow in my understanding as time goes on. And this is the faith by which we, through hearing what God's Son has told me, Lord, you have the words of eternal life, Peter said. So that's the one of the five senses that gets us to the truth of the matter, when it comes to the Eucharist. This is the body of Christ. Now, adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, reception of Holy Communion, our faith in the Eucharist, our celebration of the Mass, helps us, therefore, to see beyond appearances. Christians are well trained to see beyond appearances. Now, we do that not only with the Eucharist, but here I held up this this book a moment ago looks like a looks like a book, right? If you have the Bible on the shelf, it's pretty much. I mean, a lot of times Bibles are more nicely adorned and ornate, but it pretty much looks like a book, right? You wouldn't know just from looking at the book that it's the Word of God. Your faith tells you it's the Word of God. The baby lying in the manger on Christmas morning. Did Jesus look different or he looked like a baby? And yet our faith gets beyond the appearances and says, well, that's, that's God. That's God. And so we think about the human person. We think about the unborn human person. The baby truly living, truly existing, but in the first nine months of life, there in what Scripture calls in Psalm 139, the secret place, there in the womb, where God fashioned each one of us marvelously and intricately, but hidden from the view of everybody else. Of course, today we can view that child better than ever. But again, faith takes us beyond appearances because the earlier you go in the development of the baby, uh, the more primitive the baby looks, even when you get down to when each of our lives began at the single cell stage, right as the process of fertilization concluded, single-cell human being, is that a person? Is that someone of us, a brother, a sister, an equal? Yes, the answer is yes. Our faith, just as we can see in the tiniest particle of the sacred host or the single drop of the precious blood, we can see Christ, we can see God. So in the tiniest human being, we can see the image of God. We can see a brother. We can see a sister. We can see a person who should be protected indeed from destruction, 
who should never be considered an object, who should never be considered somebody that we can own or manipulate or exploit or enslave. This is our faith. Mother Teresa, whom I knew, would say this often, that you know, in our devotion to the Eucharist, we're strengthened in our pro-life conviction. Because if we can look at the host and say, my Lord and my God, when we can look at the poor and say, my brother, my sister, the image of God. We can look in the womb. We can look at the sick, the disabled. We can look at the person so different from us in so many ways and see our brother, our sister. Didn't Jesus teach this all the time? Those lepers, he didn't walk away from them. He saw them as his brothers, his sisters. The man on the side of the road in the parable of the Good Samaritan. To see a brother, to see a sister. The story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich. He went to hell because he failed to recognize that Lazarus was his brother. A human being deserving of respect, deserving of help. Indeed, St. John tells us in his first letter, if someone has enough of this world's goods and fails to help his brother in need, how can the love of God survive in him? He doesn't just talk about the harm that comes from the brother that you don't help. How can the love of God survive in you? You're not helping yourself. So the Eucharistic faith, the Eucharistic worship, the piercing of the veil, the looking beyond the senses enables us then to look at our brothers and sisters in a way that strengthens our pro-life commitment. So the Eucharist is a powerful antidote to this myth that value depends on appearances. It does not. So the Eucharist, sacrament of faith, strengthens us in our pro-life convictions. Secondly, the Eucharist is a sacrament of unity. Unity. I, when I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 32, will draw all people to myself. The lifting up of Christ on the cross is the lifting up of the entire world into redemption. And the beginning of the people of life. St. John Paul II wrote eloquently about this in Evangelium Vitae, the Gospel of Life. He said, the people of life is born on Good Friday at the cross. Jesus is giving his life and is giving life. Says to the good thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus Death makes the crowd go away, beating their breasts in repentance. Jesus' death brings about an earthquake where some of the dead rise. Jesus grants forgiveness. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. In the process of offering his life, he's giving life. And that blood and water that flow from his side are the fountain of the sacramental life of the church. Baptism and the Eucharist, and he looks at Mary and says about John, who's also standing there, Behold your son, the birth of the people of God is coming about. The unity that comes about by the death of Christ is because the sin that it destroys is the cause of all division. The word diabolical means to tear asunder. Sin, the church teaches us, separates us from God, separates us from one another, introduces all kinds of hatred, conflict, division, violence within the human family. Sin, furthermore, separates us from created reality. You know, you see in the prophecies of the coming of the, of the Savior, the lion will lie down with the lamb, the desert will break forth into fruitfulness and Nature itself is redeemed. We await, Peter says, new heavens and a new earth. The whole created reality is reconciled to God. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. <coughs> Excuse me. I will draw all creation to myself. I will bring unity to the scattered people of God. God did this at the time of the exile, right? And he speaks through Ezekiel 
about raising people from their graves and bringing people back together from the lands to which they had been scattered. Now that has a deep meaning, has a deep historical meaning. God's people were taken away from the land that God had promised, delivered to them that they, they had to defend. And God was fighting with them against their enemies. But then because they were unfaithful to the covenant, he scattered them. But he said, I will bring you back. He never abandons us completely. I will bring you back to your own land. Punish you for a while, but I will redeem you. And that signifies not only the historical restoration of a remnant of the people back to the land that God gave, but the scattered parts of our own being, our own relationships, our own mind and heart and will and emotions. Sin divides us from ourselves. Paul, I, I, I know what's right. I'm doing what's wrong. I don't understand myself. So the gathering back together of the scattered people of God as a deep spiritual and personal meaning of the healing from sin, the healing of the division that sin brings about within ourselves, among others, with created reality, and of course, in our relationship with the Lord. The Eucharist is the sacrament of unity. We're receiving Christ, but think of all the people throughout the world receiving communion today. Are they all receiving something different or are they receiving exactly the same reality? They're receiving the same Christ. It's not my Christ and your Christ and his Christ and her Christ. It's, it's the same Jesus. And therefore, as we're receiving him, he's receiving us. It's like he's drawing all of us up into himself when I am lifted up from the earth. I will draw all people to myself. And therefore, he's drawing us to one another. As we receive the body of Christ, we are coming into union with Christ and each other. This is why. We have that reconciliation gesture in the Mass before we receive Him, both at the beginning, when we have the penance. Lord, I am, I am, uh, we express our sorrow for our sins. And then the sign of peace, which is meant to symbolize the fact that before we come and offer our gift on the altar, we are to be reconciled with our brother and sister. If we remember our brother has something against us, go first and be reconciled and then come and offer your gift. The Eucharist is a sacrament of unity. You know, when we call each other brothers and sisters, as I have called you already during this, uh, during this time together, it's not just a metaphor, that's a reality. We do have common blood. It's the blood of Christ. We have a common spirit. We're actually closer to one another than blood brothers and sisters. We are blood brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, in the blood of Christ, in the spirit of which we have all come to drink. And so this unity of the human family is both fostered by and symbolized by the Eucharist, the one bread, as grain once scattered, you know the, 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 the hymn, and it comes from the Didache, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, one of the earliest Christian writings outside of the Bible, as the grain scattered on the hillside is in this broken bread made one, as the grapes, individual grapes, then crushed, now become the one, the one chalice, the wine that becomes the blood of Christ. So may we, your people, be gathered into your body. And of course, Paul teaches powerfully about this uh, in Scripture. As we receive the Eucharist, are we not one body, individually members of the body of Christ? Paul makes it clear. And he says each part of the body is necessary and interacts with the other parts. And therefore, we each have our own gifts, but we are part of one body, all serving one another and serving the Lord of all and the head of the body of the church. What a beautiful reality. And this unity that we have in the Eucharist is, is also the subject of a few other biblical 
uh, analogies. It's not only the, the body, it's the vine. I am the true vine, Jesus says. You are the branches, the same life pulsating through us all. And then, of course, there's the image of the living temple. Jesus, of course, referred to his body as the temple. And St. Peter builds on this reference. We are living stones. You know, when a bishop consecrates a parish church, he sprinkles the walls with holy water and each of the individual bricks receiving this water. We are each the living stones. Christ Jesus is the cornerstone. And we're all united into one edifice, a living temple, which is the church. And that water flowing over those stones that make up the walls of the church reminds us of the water that flowed over us when we were baptized because that was how we became members of this body, branches on this vine, living stones in this living temple. Christ and the Eucharist unifies us. Abortion divides us. Is there a human relationship closer than a mother and her unborn child? They're so close that some people confuse the two. It is a separate and distinct person. That's an important part of the pro-life message. But is there any relationship closer? God seems to be, in Isaiah, trying to imagine an example of the unimaginable. Can a mother, because he's, he's trying to find a, a very convincing example that he's never going to abandon us. And he says, can a mother forget her own child? be without tenderness for the child of her womb, even should she forget, I will never forget you. You know, Paul writing to the Romans and Paul writing to Timothy make, makes reference to a particular problem that will happen in the end times, the loss of natural affection. It's a very disturbing word used twice there in the New Testament, lack of natural affection. Is that not what we see in abortion? It's like God gives us the most extreme example of something that could hardly be imagined, and yet he also leaves the door open that it would happen, that a mother would forget her own child. That's what abortion manifests. It is. A denial of natural affection, it is a division right at the heart and core of humanity, and it has consequences. You know, we, we oversee the largest ministry in the world for healing after abortion. Rachel's Vineyard, I'm the pastoral director, as I said earlier, of this ministry throughout the world. And, uh, and I also uh, am pastoral director of Silent No More, and we have people that have gone through the healing after abortion. And when I say people, I'm not just talking about the moms, I'm talking about the dads, I'm talking about grandparents, siblings, aunts, uncles, relatives, friends, friends who helped their friend get an abortion, and they suffer too, they grieve also. They have to mourn that child, they have to be healed of their complicity in this act of child killing. And all of these people, they come together and they experience this, uh, this mercy of the Lord. And we teach in this ministry the shockwaves of abortion. Our executive director, Janet Morana, wrote a book about this, The Shockwaves of Abortion. You could check it out at abortionshockwaves.com. And what it means is that the division that abortion creates, the rupture, is not only the breaking of that body of the baby, the breaking of that bond of the mother with the child, which, by the way, affects her ability to bond to future children that she may have and actually contributes to child abuse. But other bonds are broken. Marriages fall apart. The ability of that mom, of that dad, to form other relationships falls apart. The rupture between the mom who had an abortion and her parents, who may have been involved in pushing the abortion and therefore incur her wrath later on when she recognizes how harmful it was 
and on and on it goes. The division and the damage in concentric circles reaching farther and farther, we haven't even begun to adequately understand the damage abortion does. And what about the surviving children? What about the sibling who says, oh, my mom, my dad, they had my, my, my sister killed. They had my brother murdered. What are they going to do to me? Do they love me? And so we have a saying in the Silent No More campaign, abortion scatters, healing gathers. Now this question of abortion being the opposite of uh, the unity that God calls his people to also helps us understand a question that comes up very frequently about the relationship between receiving Holy Communion and being for or against abortion. Jesus tries, Jesus calls, Jesus makes possible the unity of the human family. He calls us to that unity and we resist it by sin. The two great commandments, love God, love your neighbor, Jesus tells us what? That they are linked. And St. John, as I quoted earlier, says in his first letter that if we see another person in need and we have enough of this world's goods to help him but we don't, well then how can the love of God survive in us? Well then, this is the source of Jesus' teaching and this particular biblical teaching is the key answer that I give when people say, well should those who are in favor of abortion be receiving communion? Jesus says, if you go to the altar now we go to the altar to make sacrifice. See, a lot of people think about going to Mass and receiving communion as the same thing. They're not the same thing. We usually receive communion at Mass, although we are able to receive it sometimes outside of Mass. But there's more to the Mass than receiving communion. The Mass, before we receive communion, is an offering that not only is the priest doing in a manner specific to him and requiring ordination, but we are all doing thanks to the priesthood of the faithful, which we are receiving and participating in through baptism. We are all offering ourselves to the Lord in union with, to the Father in union with, the sacrifice made once and for all by Christ. So Jesus says if you're bringing your gift, and for us the gift is our, our lives, our activities, our joys, our sorrows, our plans, our, our everything. If you're bringing your gift, Paul says, offer your bodies as a spiritual sacrifice to the Lord. If you bring your gift to the altar, and there you recognize, you remember, Oh, my brother has something against me. Leave your gift there. Go be reconciled first with your brother and then come back and offer your gift. And that's the answer. Should those who are in favor of abortion be receiving the Lord in the Eucharist? But Jesus said, "Go, you have to be reconciled first. If you're in favor of abortion, your, your unborn brothers and sisters are not reconciled to you and you're not reconciled to them. Boy, do they have something against you. Hey, he or she is not even recognizing me as a human being. They're, 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 they're disregarding my rights. It's not even that they're necessarily having an abortion or even participating in abortion, but just to think that it's okay to trample down the right to life of another human being, to have that human being be dismembered and call that a, a moral right? You're not reconciled. Be reconciled. Recognize that human being as a brother, as a sister, as a person. Then you can come and offer your gift because then you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, have mercy. I want to be in union with you. And he says... Are you listening to the voices of your brothers and sisters who are saying, have mercy? Are you in union with them? You love me, are you loving your neighbor? If we're not, it's the same reason why before we receive communion, we ought to be forgiving. We need to be forgiving others. If we're hating somebody else, then again, we're excluding them from our love, which then is separating us from God. And then we're going to communion to be united with God. You see, the problem is not somebody else, either Jesus or the church or the, the priest or, or, or anybody excluding us from communion. The issue is we're stepping on the gas and the brakes at the same time. 
We want to be in union with Jesus, but then we don't want to be in union with Jesus because we don't want to be in union with certain brothers or sisters of ours that we consider less than human, less worthy of forgiveness. Are the unborn aren't persons? Or they can be dismembered and decapitated. That's okay. You see the problem? We're just contradicting ourselves. We're trying to live a contradiction. We're literally pushing on the gas and the brakes at the same time. It's like if the priest presents us the host, the body of Christ, and we take the host, then we break off a piece and give it back to him. Oh, not this piece, Father, not this piece. I'll take the body of Christ, but not this piece. I'll take the body of Christ, but I don't, I'm not taking the unborn. I'll recognize my brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, but I won't recognize those babies. It doesn't work that way. And that's why, especially those in public life, we see our politicians some of them in very prominent places, saying that they're practicing Catholics, going to communion and making it publicly known that they're going to communion, and not only not accepting the rights of the unborn, not accepting the teaching about abortion, but actively promoting abortion. We've got people in political positions who are seeing to it that more and more children are being killed by abortion because they're relaxing the policies, they're pouring more money into the abortion industry, they're, they're, they're taking down any kind of obstacles in the way to abortion, they're decrying and objecting to pro-life laws that are protecting these babies, and then they're claiming to want to receive Jesus. Why do they want to receive Jesus? And they don't want to love and receive the babies Jesus made. The babies Jesus died for. You know what the other question I have, going back to what we were saying first about the Eucharist as a sacrament of faith, why do they even believe it's the body of Christ? Their senses don't tell them. Their reason doesn't tell them. Well, why do they believe it's the body of Christ? It's by the authority of Christ telling them, right? It's the authority of the church. Yeah, but it's that same church with that same authority that's telling you that the baby in the womb is a baby that needs to be protected. Why are you being so selective in, in, in what you're believing or not believing from the very same authority who's saying it? The very, the very reason that they, they're saying they want to receive communion is the reason they should be receiving and respecting the unborn. Okay, let's go on to another aspect of the Eucharist. It is the sacrament of life. I am the bread of life. Jesus explains in John chapter 6, the living Father sent him, and he has life because of the Father. They have a unity which is eternal, indescribable. It's the mystery of the Holy Trinity. And then he says, the one who eats me will have life because of me. So this, the Eucharist is all about the imparting of life. It's all about the victory of life over death because what is the sacrifice of Christ that brings about the Eucharist? It is the sacrifice of the cross, which as we reflected on before, destroys death and gives rise to the people of life. So every time we're celebrating the Eucharist, we're celebrating the victory of life. And if we're celebrating the victory of life, we're celebrating the victory over abortion. Jesus Christ, Paul writes to Timothy, has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through his gospel. Christ, once having died, never dies again. Death has no more power over him, Paul writes to the Romans. If it has no more power over him, it has no more power over us because we're the body of Christ. We're branches on the vine. We're stones in the living temple. It has no more power over us. Death has no more power over the full Christ. The power of abortion has been broken. It is the power of death. Now, the battle is still real. Babies are really in danger of dying today and are dying today, and we really have to save them, not just the spirit, the body. But brothers and sisters, we can go into this battle with supreme confidence. John Paul II said to the the pilgrims gathered at World Youth Day in Denver in 1993. He said, have no fear. The outcome of the battle for life is already decided. We're not just working for victory. I always say we're working from victory. Victory is our starting point. And so we have supreme confidence. We don't scratch our heads wondering if or how or when we'll overcome Planned Parenthood and the culture of death. 
We stand before the culture of death and we proclaim you have already been overcome in Jesus Christ. The Eucharist is the victory of life and therefore the victory over abortion. And the Eucharist is also the sacrament of supreme and true worship. When we sing the tantum ergo at adoration before benediction, we, we sing in those words that the old forms of worship have passed away and now newer rites prevail. That's part of the, the words that we're singing. We have a new worship that now prevails over the rituals and sacrifices of the old covenant and it is the sacrifice in the body and blood of Christ. True worship in the Eucharist. Now, if you study the attitudes of the American people on abortion, you find that there's a correlation between those who practice their faith more regularly and those who are pro-life. And the reason really is simple to understand. When we practice our faith regularly, we are saying that the center of gravity for my life and for my choices is God. If we don't acknowledge that, well, who's the center of gravity? Well, myself. And that's what the term pro-choice ultimately gets to. It's my choice that matters the most. My decision. My will. My rights. My body. My preferences. My choice. I, know I always say there's two truths we have to learn in life. Simple to state. Hard to live. Number one, there is a God. Number two... It is in me. Each of us has to be able to say and live those words. God is real and he's different from we are. We worship him. We don't worship ourselves. He's the center of gravity, not us. The Eucharist, the sacrament of true worship. And finally, the Eucharist, and this illumines our pro-life commitment as well is the sacrament of love. Greater love than this no one has than to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is teaching us the meaning of love in the Eucharist, giving himself away for us. The best symbol of love is not the heart, it's the crucifix. What did Jesus do there? A writer by the name of uh, Gustav Thibon has said that the true God transforms violence into suffering. The false God transforms suffering into violence. Oh, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of this pregnancy. I'm going to solve this fear through the violence of abortion. I'm going to accept this child. It's going to be, it's going to, it's going to be tough. I have to, like Mother Teresa says, we, uh, we, we, she said this in her prayer breakfast speech in 1994. Or she and I discussed it when I visited with her. She said, we teach the woman who's carrying a child but doesn't know what to do. We teach her how to love. That's how we stop abortion. We teach her how to sacrifice her own plans and desires, preferences and conveniences. And that's the true God transforming violence into suffering. We suffer through the power of love. We suffer through circumstances that we might be tempted to solve by violence, but we say no to the violence Sometimes saying no to the violence, the only alternative is to say yes to the suffering, and we're able to do it through the power of love. And love, brothers and sisters, is the heart and core of the pro-life movement. I have here a book by Dr. Bernard Nathanson. He was a key founder of the abortion movement in America, and I knew him and helped him in the final years of his life as he was living out his conversion. And he wrote this book called The Hand of God, A Journey from Death to Life by the abortion doctor who changed his mind. And I want to read for you a couple of paragraphs here about the power of love, which is, by the way, love inspires every aspect of the pro-life movement. Uh, I was just at, uh, very recently, a conference of 1,600-plus uh, Pregnancy Center directors and staff. It was the CareNet conference a few months 
Prior to that, I was a speaker at the Heartbeat Conference. Again, some 1,400 or so pregnancy center directors. These are people who are sitting every day with the moms, the dads, the grandparents of these unborn children, urging them to choose life, enabling them, equipping them to choose life, and uh, overcoming the temptation to abortion, replacing despair with hope, which is a great way to summarize what the pro-life movement does. That's a loving work, but you know the loving work is not just in the pregnancy centers or in the healing ministries like we do with Rachel's Vineyard and Silent No More. It's in the political activity. It's in the rescue activity. It's in the it's in the lobbying, it's in the educating, it's in the, the legislative hearings in front of a hostile pro-abortion uh, legislative crowd. And it, don't, don't, don't think that any aspect of pro-life work has a monopoly on love. They don't. And we have to be careful uh, that we don't speak that way. And Dr. Nathanson encountered love when he encountered the pro-life movement. And he was at a rescue. Remember, this was in the days when there were more rescues. There are more starting to take place now again when people just physically put themselves in the way of the abortionist, at the door of the abortion facility. So listen to Dr. Nathanson's words. The morning of the rescue was bitterly cold. I joined about 1,200 demonstrators at their rendezvous in the West 40s in Manhattan. They sat themselves down in rows in front of the clinic, effectively blocking entrances to and exits from the abortion clinic. They began to sing hymns softly, joining hands and swaying from the waist. I circulated on the periphery at first, observing the faces, interviewing some of the participants, making notes furiously. It was only then that I apprehended the exaltation, the pure love on the faces of that shivering mass of people, surrounded as they were by hundreds of New York City policemen. They prayed, they supported and encouraged each other, they sang hymns of joy, and they constantly reminded each other of the absolute prohibition against violence. It was, I suppose, the sheer intensity of the love and prayer that astonished me. I wondered, how can these people give of themselves for a constituency that is and will always be mute, invisible, and unable to thank them? That's the Eucharist. That's the core of the pro-life movement. Greater love than this no one has than to lay down his life for his friends. The rescuers learn how to lay down their bodies at the doors of the abortion facility peacefully to save those lives because that's what the Eucharist teaches us and that's what the Eucharist empowers us to do. And that's what Jesus means when he says when you have a banquet, don't throw it for the, don't invite the rich, uh, uh, the influential, the wealthy. They will pay you back. Invite those who cannot pay you back and be happy that they cannot pay you back because you will be repaid in the resurrection of the just. The unborn can't pay us back. They don't even know they're in danger. Pro-life is the purest form of love. Rescuing the most helpless in all the different ways that the pro-life movement does it. It's the most unselfish kind of love. And finally, brothers and sisters, it's the words of the Eucharist that show us the way to the culture of life. And they're exactly the opposite of the words of the culture of abortion. Words that are spoken by the priest at every mass, words that are spoken by the Lord before he dies, words that are spoken at the heart of every vocation, whether it's husband to wife, wife to husband, parents to children, priest to his congregation, single person in service of the world. They're the words that summarize love and summarize life and summarize the purpose of life. This is my body. And those words spoken by our Lord to show the self-giving which has to be at the heart of every vocation are words then that are stolen, hijacked, mutilated, exploited, turned inside out and upside down by the abortion industry and the culture of death who say, this is my body, I can do what I want. Even if it means killing the baby, this is my body. 
And Jesus uses those same words. He doesn't say, this is my body, I'll control it so that you die. He says, this is my body, I give it away in love so that you live. That's how each of us is called to live these words. Let's pray that we might do so. Lord, thank you for the Eucharist. You are the Eucharist. Thank you for the meaning of love, the meaning of life, the meaning of worship, the meaning of unity, the meaning of faith. Thank you for letting us see the unborn child, love the unborn child, lay down our lives for the unborn child, speak up for the unborn child, and live those words, Lord God, this is my body given up for you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. May the living of those words transform our world from a culture of death to a culture of life and keep us all faithful to the pro-life work that you give us to do. We pray now in the words that Jesus gave us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray to our Heavenly Mother. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Friends, I'm pro-life leader Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Please connect with me at our main website. That's endabortion.us. Endabortion.us. We'll connect with you there. God bless you, and let's build the culture of life.
renew my gratitude not only to Maureen, Ted, and their team, but to all of you brothers and sisters, because prayer and fasting, as you know, is essential to driving out the demons of the culture of death. And I know, in fact, the truth is far more than I know of your sacrifices in doing just that. So keep it up. Together we are on the winning team. And I really appreciate the prayer support that you give to the pro-life movement, to me, to ministries like Priests for Life, uh, and to our unborn brothers and sisters. Let's move forward with confidence. And as the church meditates and proclaims even more vigorously the gift of the Eucharist during throughout this coming year, friends, echo the message that you just heard from me. Go to priestsforlife.org slash Eucharist, and you'll be able to find a lot more, and especially that, wasn't that music video powerful? I never get tired of watching that, even though it goes back over 20 years. It never gets old. Spread it and use it. Bring it to the attention of those that are organizing special Eucharistic events in your parish, in your diocese, and let's, uh, 
Let's just drink deeply of this gift of the Lord. Thank you so much, pro-life leader Frank Pavone here. Greetings from all of us at Priests for Life. Stay connected with me on social media at FR Frank Pavone. That is FR Frank Pavone. And do support our work at ProLifeGift.org. That's ProLifeGift.org. We will talk to you soon. This has been the End Abortion Podcast. To learn more, to help end abortion, and to connect with us on social media, visit endabortion.net.